One of life's greatest questions is, what happens to us after we die? Is death the end or a new beginning? Welcome to the Round Trip Death Podcast. In this show, we listen to first-hand accounts of people who have gone beyond the veil and return to talk about it. We would like to welcome to the show today, Russell Ricks. Russell, how are you? Good. <laughs> good. It is good to meet you finally. Yeah, you as well. Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into your experience in just a minute. But give us, if you don't mind, just a little bit of your history. Oh uh, well, I grew up in a in a very creative family. I'm a professional artist. I uh, paint landscapes, uh, impressionist landscapes. Um, my uh, father, um, when I was uh, 10, 12 years old, well, about 12 years old, he started a art school that it was called it was a plein air painting school that means to paint out in the open air like the french impressionists did so i was fortunate and it was nationally advertised and he hired a, a well-known instructors uh so i was fortunate to get this training since the time i was young my father also before he started that was a sign painter so i learned that as well so i i do both <laughs> i'm a you know, I'm a commercial artist and a fine artist. Um, and I hadn't done a commercial art, you know, sign painting for years, but now I'm kind of starting to swing back and kind of using that as a filler in between my art cells a little bit. Um, I'm a father with 14 children. Um, some people think I'm a polygamist, but I'm not. I, uh, I'm remarried. I had seven children of my own, remarried after 15 years. And uh, been married 23 years now to a, uh, I met a single mother of seven children and uh, we've made a family together. All my kids are on their own now and they have family of their own. So we have, now we have uh, 36 grandchildren and, and we're expecting one, I think in December, um, a, a granddaughter, um, one, of, one of my um, birth daughters. Um, will be having her first uh, girl. She She's a boy mom and uh, she has four boys and now she'll have a girl. Um, and I was born with a neurological disorder um, that I was not fully aware of, of what was causing issues in my life until at the age of 50, I got an MRI scan. I was born with what's called complete agenesis of the corpus callosum and and for short, you say ACC or complete ACC, C-A-C-C. Um, and um, the corpus callosum um, is an organ, um, is a bundle of nerve fibers that sits in the middle of your brain between your left and right hemisphere. And um, they experts say it has an average of 180,000 to 200,000 nerve fibers connect to both sides of the brain so you have a it's uh, it's like an information superhighway so information can travel quickly when it needs to from either side um i was born without that so and yet i'm high functioning my youngest son who also has this he and i are in the high 10 percentile of those who have this and so we're more fortunate others who have complete ac c or partial acc are in um, far more, they're, they're 
circumstances far more severe. Those that have partial agenesis have brain seizures, but we don't. Um, so you're better off not having, not being born with a corpus callosum um, rather than a partial one. And and how I'm able to function fairly normally is my uh, uh, the, the brain in the fetus, when it recognized the corpus callosum wouldn't form, tried to correct it and created random connections, which are called props bundles. And fortunately, um, it developed enough where I can function fairly normally and uh, I can learn. But those of us who have this, um, sometimes it takes a little longer than the average person before it finally sinks in. Um, however, um, if a parent has a child like me that they're struggling with in learning, uh, you just have to be patient and show lots of love and just keep repeating. It, it's not going to make sense. It's like we're living in a complete different reality. Um, but once it finally clicks, then it sinks in. Once we got it, we got it. So we can learn. Um, and uh, I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Well, I appreciate you going back and giving a little background because it it factors into, I think, what you're going to be talking about. I know you had a rough childhood, and this condition that you had led to you being, um, I think, as you called it, you know, well, socially behind, and which led to a lot of bullying. And why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Oh, so I my parents recognized that I was – um, socially behind or not quite at the level of my peers. So I didn't go to kindergarten. Uh, they held me back. And so when I, by the time I went to first grade, I was seven years old. And my birthday's in the summer, so I was one of the um, um, older ones um, that started first grade at, at seven. I um, <clears throat> had difficulty in school. Uh, I'd get teased and beat up, and during recess, no one wanted me on the teams when they'd divide to play kickball or or baseball or football, whatever. If I was picked, I was always the last one. And everyone would, you know, no, I don't want Russell, you know, whatever, stuff like that. So it was, uh, when I wasn't physically beat up, it was emotional, um, you know, beating, basically. And it was hard. And... Uh, uh, if I did make a friend, um, it wouldn't last very long. Uh, what I didn't know at the time was, even though I, I would try hard to make a friend and I would say something wrong or inappropriate, and, and it was innocent, I didn't realize I was saying something that offended them. Not anything vulgar or anything like that, just something that offended them. Um, and so, you know, nobody wanted to be my friend. And... Uh, and I, they'd call me retard and, you know, teased and so on. So um, since my birthday is in the summer, in July, um, by the time I turned eight years old um, and was baptized, I'm a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And we believe that um, eight years old is about the average age of accountability when you start to recognize that you're responsible for your mistakes. Um, you take responsibility for your misdeeds. Um, anyway, so I was baptized at that age, um, you know, like a typical LDS child. 
And I remember having some special feelings. Uh, I remember thinking, I don't know, I can't remember if it was a few days or a few weeks later. Um, I don't think it was more than a, a week or so, honestly. I remember one night when it was time for me to uh, go to bed and have my prayers. I remember thinking about my at my baptism, I felt some special feelings, and I decided that what I felt was God. And um, I mean, it felt comfortable and it felt good and and peaceful and calm. And um, I was, you know, I had just had a conversation earlier um, over the past few days before that night with my parents about not wanting to go to school, you know, let me stay at home and play with my little brother, please. I can't face this again. And my, my uh, parents said, well, it's a law. You have no choice. You know, we held you back as, as long as we felt we could, but you've, you've got to go. And, um, you know, and I, I said, but I'm going to face all this. And that's, Oh, you just gotta be tough. But dad didn't realize how difficult it was, especially with someone with a, this disability this difficulty with social things. And that was a different time. Yeah, it was. It was a time where, hey, you just cowboy up, boy. Exactly. You know, you just just be tough and deal with it. And we weren't really doing anything to stop bullying in schools, yeah. were we? Yeah. And we didn't we didn't call it abuse back then either. You know, it was just the way it was. That was just life. And um but now we won't know, you know, more about it. So I thought that night, well, you know, my parents aren't going to help me. Um, and I thought I've got to get out of this somehow. I, I was terrified to face another year of that abuse. And so um, as I was thinking about those special feelings I felt at my baptism, I also reflected back to something that happened to me years before um, a very, very special experience. And and this is something that I didn't share with anyone until I shared it with my second wife a few months before my mother passed away. Um, my uh, mother was gifted with a beautiful high soprano voice. And she, she was professionally trained. In fact, she had studied in Hollywood for a few months and was considering becoming an actress. And when she um, saw and was actually she Warner brothers accepted her audition and told her that you can start working for us, you know? Um, but then they said, um, you have to be a hundred percent focused on your acting and singing career. Your family comes second. My mom said, Nope, that's not what I want. And she went home and, and went to Rick's college, met dad. They got married, raised seven kids and mom sang to us every day, pretty much. Um, she was singing all the time. And I was not much more than maybe somewhere between six months and 18 months years old. But this is a memory that I've never forgotten. When my mom would sing for a period of, it seemed like several months, I, I saw people dressed in white come into our home and surround mom and she would sing to us. And they would linger for a while. And then after a few songs, they would leave. And um, I remember being frustrated um, trying to communicate with my family and they didn't seem, I, I couldn't see. So I don't think I, I think I was too young to really uh, say any words or maybe if I could say one or two words, I couldn't really form it into sentences because I, my 
my family just was not getting my attention. You know, I was trying to say, who are these people? And after a while, I just kind of got used to it and decided that maybe they're just um, relatives who had passed on and they've come to visit because they enjoy my mom's music. And um, so I was thinking about that that night uh, before my prayer. And I thought, well, you know, if what I felt at my baptism was God and those people dressed in white came from heaven, then God has to be real. And if anyone can get me out of this mess, then I believe God can. And I got on my knees and, and uh, begged God. I, I said, Heavenly Father, I need your help here. I said, I, I can't face another day, a, another year at school like this. I won't. So the way I see it is um, either you've got to take this away somehow or take me away. And I, 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 re, I tried to reason with him. I, I said, um, I was bad. I've just been baptized and my slate's clean, clean. And so in my mind, this would be the perfect time to go. <laughs> so please, you know, but I, I said, and I also said, I know it's wrong for me to take my life, but if you take me, it's okay. So I'm begging you to end my mission here on earth and let me go to a place where I know I'll be safe and loved and not have to face that abuse. And then I climbed in bed crying. And just at that moment before I drifted off to sleep, uh, it was uh, it was like the room started to spin and the bed started to spin. You know, this, you know, this was not like in the Wizard of Oz. It was just kind of like, almost like just before you're going to black out, you know. But, uh, um, and then all of a sudden I just felt this separation. Um, I don't quite know how to describe it. It was almost like being pulled two different directions. The next thing I knew, I looked down and I could see my body below. There I was above my body. And I thought, well, this is strange. This must be a, I thought I was having a conscious dream. How can I be two places at once? This must be a dream. Above me was this tiny bright light. And uh, I felt this love, this incredible love from it. And like a magnet, it was almost like I was being pulled to that light. And I was drawn to it anyway, uh, because of that love I felt. And I thought, well, I'm having a, I think I'm having a conscious dream, but I'm just going to go with it. This is really cool. And uh, I was pulled into that light. I remember going through the ceiling and seeing all the stuff in the, the rafters. And Dad had uh, concrete-covered I-beams. Uh, he built a house back in 19, early 1950s for 12000 bucks, And so he thought he was really saving a lot of money. Later, he regretted having flat roofs in Idaho with all that snow. But I remember seeing all that structure inside the roof and then going through the roof and up into the, in, into the sky and into the atmosphere and passing uh, stars. Eventually, as I was pulled into this light, eventually it was like I was drawn to this planet that was surrounded by clouds. And as I got closer, it was like the clouds. I don't say I had a tunnel experience, but here the, the clouds parted like it tunnel and they were kind of like swirling around and, and then I was brought down into that world wherever it was and on top of a high on a mountaintop in a aspen a grove in a clearing and I found myself standing on one end of that clearing and it was like 25-30 foot radius in the middle was like a, a worn pathway that went straight through uh, and on into the clearing of the forest and the other 
the other uh, direction and came from some, I don't know, some other place, maybe some high, higher, holier place. But I sensed that I was in some kind of a spiritual realm and I didn't. I knew I was not on earth. And at that point, I, I thought, well, this is, this is really cool. I, my, I, I think my prayer has been answered. And I, I sensed that it was my spirit and not my body. But yet I still felt a connection to my body. It, it was like a conduit to it. Even though my spirit was separated, I, I uh, felt like my body uh, was still kind of connected to that pathway back. And so I had this sense that my experience in the spirit, in this beautiful world that I was in, this beautiful heavenly garden, was just temporary. And that I would eventually have to go back to my body. So I knew that immediately. But I knew that my prayer had been answered. And while I was in this spiritual realm, I saw colors that I had never seen before um, with the plant life and the flowers. And, and uh, the, it seemed like everything was filled with light from within. So you're an artist. Have you been able to paint this? I've attempted to. Um, you can go on my website, russellricksart.com, and click on the picture that shows an aspen tree. Those are some of my attempts, but, you know, how can you capture something that's beyond words? And our palette here is far inferior compared to the palette, um, you know, on the other side. So we have our, we have our light prism. We only, we we have this little range of light that we, that we can see with the naked eye, but then um, it's much broader than that. And our naked eye can't see all the rest of that. And I think only our spiritual eye see that. And um, so I've attempted, I've given up trying to try to imitate exactly what I saw, but I, so when I try to paint an aspen tree grove that, kind of remind me of where I was. Um, I try to capture a spiritual quality. I think that I can kind of do. But other than that, you know, the colors and everything. I've had other experiencers tell me that they can't, they've seen flowers and things like that, that they just can't even describe the colors no, of. And yeah. you as an artist, you as an artist, that must be even more, I don't know if it's frustrating or more interesting I like how you expressed it as a palette. We just don't have the same palette, meaning you couldn't you couldn't mix the right colors because you don't have the right colors to start with to mix to get those. Is there any other way you could explain some of the colors that you saw in the plants and things? You know, it's beyond words, really. And uh, during that experience also, what I thought was really interesting was the it was like all the different plant life from the grass and the flowers and the trees and the leaves on the trees and the birds flying around and, and uh, uh, a nearby brook that I didn't see, but I heard the water trickling. It was each of these different items had its own vibration. And that, that vibration was kind of translated into music um, so they each had their different vibration and together, and someone says, well, what did it sound like? Have you ever heard a theremin? I don't think so. What is it? 
This is a, a glass instrument, um, electronic glass instrument, and the closer you put your hands to it, it makes these different sounds, kind of like, uh, you know, Star Wars. <laughs> Star Trek. Those people get upset if you get that backwards. Yes, Star Trek, not not Darth Vader's sounds, no. Um, Star Trek. Um, okay. So it's kind of like the theremin instrument. And look that up online, maybe we'll listen to some videos. So, But it's really interesting. Um, but together it made this most incredible heavenly music, uh, all the different plant life together. And it was as if it was praising God continuously. Um, you know, like everything was alive and praising God continuously, even the light um, was praising God. And uh, during my experience also, I witnessed the creation. It was as if I was actually there when it, when it all began. And for me, it was like it was a, it was like a child could understand it. It was so simple. It was, and I thought, man, when I do go back, I can't wait to tell my family all the things I've learned. I'm smarter than the scientists on her, you know. And, and, but when I returned, of course, it was all blocked out. And all I could remember was having this incredible intellectual download, spiritual download of this, these experiences. So you remember that you saw the creation, but you don't remember how it happened. You didn't see like, you don't remember seeing a big bang or something like that. No, but I do remember that it had something to do with faith and God's power that I can, you know, that, but you know, how <laughs> all the details of that, I don't know, but you know, God said, let there be light. Um, it was his faith and his power uh, that caused it to happen. Um, but you know, there was more to it than that, that, but basically that was the foundation of it. So I was thinking, man, this is such a cool experience, but I know I have to go back in a while. I'm just going to, you know, soak it up as much as I can. And, and, and I recognized immediately the love that I felt, you know, it was beyond words. And I, and I knew, you know, I thought, man, I'm, I'm happy and, and everything's going to be great now. And I just kind of put it out of my mind that I had to go back. And I thought, I'm just going to get as much out of this as I can. And I started walking down that path. So there I was on one end of the clearing and I got to the other end inside and there was a large stone about adult waist high to the left of that path, uh, right at the edge of that clearing. And behind it was a, uh, was a group of larger aspen trees. One in particular had quite a large trunk and I was drawn, I was drawn to it. And for years I didn't understand why, but I just knew that there was something significant about that particular aspen tree. What I learned later, you know, they call the aspen tree an eternal tree. And if you're familiar with Pongo, that that uh, largest, the largest living organism they call, and you know, in Utah at near Fish Lake, that's like 45 acres of one living organism. The aspen is not doesn't come from a single root. They're all connected. Um, it's a it's called a communal root system. And so if one dies uh, or one is weak, the other trees kind of support it and they'll send up new shoots. If there's a fire, as long as the, the root system is fine, um, you know, that'll just keep sending up aspen trees. So they're, they're saying that, that Pongo is 10,000 years, maybe older. Um, 
and possibly one of the longest living organisms. Um, and so they call it the eternal tree. Isn't that interesting? And also, um, I later learned uh, well, that, that that one large aspen uh, trunk, that one tree, that kind of became a tree of life symbol for me, which represents the love of God. And there I was having this experience where what I needed, I mean, I, I said a prayer and I asked God to answer my prayer. He could have answered it any other way, but he chose to give me this experience. What I needed was to feel loved, to feel assured. And, and, and what a better way <laughs> to feel that love than to be brought, you know, behind the veil and feel the love of God. And I also understand more about why that aspen tree was so important to me. The root system, I mentioned that all the, the communal root system is all one, you know, and a lot of near-death experiencers talk about becoming one with God, and I felt that, but I also felt one with my deceased ancestors as well. I felt connected, and so the, the root system was kind of like symbolic of my deceased ancestors who had passed on. They were also expressing their love and their concern. And they were kind of pulling for me during that experience. I, I felt, I sensed that they were aware. I sensed that they were there, but I didn't see them. So the aspen tree roots kind of symbolized my deceased family. Also symbolized the love of God or, or Christ and his love for us. And you think about the aspen tree trunk, it's white. That's kind of a symbol of purity, kind of white. And then it has those dark scars um, those, those scars could represent what Christ did for us. He allowed his body to be marred and he suffered on the cross for us so that we could be forgiven and we could be found in his presence after we pass on. And so the aspen tree becomes a, a, an amazing symbol for a tree of life. I was about to walk out of that clearing and all of a sudden I just got this I heard this voice that says, if you take one more step, that's the point of no return. And, you know, have no choice but to go back to mortality. And I knew I would, but I wasn't ready. I didn't want to go yet. So I just knelt down and leaned against that stone, put my hands on my face and buried my, and, uh, and leaned against the stone and just began to sob. And moments later, um, I felt this touch on my right shoulder and a gentle voice rustled. What's the matter? Why are you crying? What's wrong? And I thought, well, who is this personage that knows my name? And I turned and I saw this personage. Um, he, it was as if he stood a few inches off the ground and he was dressed in a white robe and he had white hair and a white beard. And the, his eyes enthralled me. And as an eight-year-old, the way I described his eyes at the time, his eyes appear to be on fire, and yet they're not. And I could see eternity in his eyes. And he looked into my soul with just complete love, mercy, and no judgment. And, um, and so I allowed him to do that. I had no fear. I had complete trust. And uh, he, could, he could read my soul and... and, and read my pain and my fear and he reached down to pick me up and take me to his uh, into his arms 
And uh, as he did so, oh, uh, so before before he did that, I knew immediately who it was. I identified this person as the savior. It was even before I noticed the wounds in his in the his palms and his wrists and his feet. And he reached down to pick me up, and his robe fell open a little bit, and I saw a wound in his side. And uh, um, then he lifted me up. We we left that garden grove, and I don't know if you, I don't know how to describe that. We flew. We were we just transported. That's probably a better word. There was a city in clouds way off in the distance, and we went to that city in clouds. It seems like we traveled for some time, but yet I had no sense of time. It seemed like I was, during the whole experience, it seemed like it was days, maybe weeks, but I couldn't really tell. And, uh, um, but apparently it just encompassed the whole night because I woke up the next morning when I returned and it was daylight. But um, anyway, I was brought to the city of light that all the buildings appeared to be gold um, and the, the wall around the city appeared as gold and the, and the streets were paved um, uh, with what appeared to be gold. And, uh, you know, other NDEer describe this uh, uh, heavenly, uh, a city of light, maybe with marble and different things like that. And, you know, perhaps that was there, but all I, I just recognized the gold buildings and uh, I was brought into one of them and uh, um, we sat down. It had benches in it. And, and actually, honestly, the, it was like the old, it looked like the old Mormon tabernacle on LDS temple square. Um, And uh, so I sat down on, on a bench uh, with, and Christ put his arm around me and we sat next to a pillar Um, and it was as if that pillar was alive. It was like all the markings were moving and, uh, you know, it was, Oh, that's interesting. And, uh, um, he put his arm around me and again said, okay, Russell, what's wrong? Let's talk about it. And I told him how afraid I was to face life outside my home and to have to return to school. And I said, well, I was just baptized and my slate's clean. So, it seems like to me, this is the perfect time for me to stay. And this is my home. Why, why can't I stay? By the way, one thing that I failed to mention during my experience in that Aspen Grove, I saw myself as an eight-year-old, but then I also saw, and I, and I think near-death experiences are sometimes symbolic, not always literal, but they're symbolic to teach us things. I also saw myself as a, a, a boy much younger, maybe four or five years old, and I sense that that represented my life before I was born. And uh, so the Savior was visiting with me and he says, Russell, you have things to do. You have, you'll have to go back and you'll have things to do. And he says, because of what you've done here, you're blessed. And uh, he started talking to me as if, almost as if it was an interview that I had with Christ before I came to earth, before I was born. And it was so it was almost like being in the in presence and in the past at the same time, like I was re-experiencing an interview with Christ. And I honestly, personally, I believe that each of us before we come to earth, we're 
we're so filled with anxiety. This is a new experience for us. We're, we are spirits. And then we come, we're going to have a physical body. And, and we, perhaps we were taught some things about what to expect, but yet we hadn't actually experienced it. And so we had a lot of anxiety. And so I think that Christ himself interviewed each one of us um, prior knowing that anxiety that we were feeling prior to our being born, just, he gave us one last little interview, one last little word of encouragement. And so it was almost like I was re-experiencing that. And he said, Russell, because of what you've done here, you're blessed and you're going to be born into a good family, a good Christian family who has the gospel and you'll be taught about God and about Jesus Christ. And you will um, gain a strong belief in those things and in the scriptures that happened after I came back because I wanted to find out as much as I could. All I, all I knew, this was before Raymond Moody book came out. This was almost a decade before. So really all the only resource that I was aware of was the scriptures. And so I gained a love for the scriptures after I had returned. And I'm from the age of eight years old on, I read the scriptures like crazy trying to understand my experience. Well, uh, uh, so he mentioned that I would be a father. And so it was important for me to return and that I would do other things, fulfill other important missions. And I said, but I'm going to, I don't want to face that abuse again. And, and, uh, and what if I, when I do come back, I messed up so bad that I'm not worthy. Now it seems like a perfect time because my slate's clean and I come back, I'll have made a bunch of mistakes. And the savior kind of chuckled at that. And he says, Oh, Russell, you don't need to worry about that. I've already taken care of that. That's why I died for you because I love you and all your other brothers and sisters. I willingly allowed my body to be marred. I've already paid that price. All you have to do is just follow me and be a good boy and everything will be fine. I'll see you again. And so he said, Russell, it's time for you to go back. Are you ready? And I really didn't want to go, but I took confidence in what the Savior told me. And I said, yeah, I'm ready. He said, but before you go, I want to make one last promise. I promise you that I will always be by your side. <coughs> and I will let you know from time to time throughout your life that I am right there. And uh, you know what? He's kept that promise throughout my life. I've had experiences that uh, he's let me know in a very personal way and sometimes in a very visual way, being an artist, being a very visual person, that he is aware of me. Um, and I don't really have time to exp you know, explain uh, so if you want if you want to know a little bit more about that, just uh, read my book. Uh, it's called Remember, A Little Boy's Near-Death Experience. This is such a sweet, tender story. I haven't wanted to interrupt at all, but I have a hundred questions too. So before we move on any farther, if you don't mind, I'd love to go back and just see if there, if you can fill in any details. For example, you talked about seeing Jesus's eyes and they were like flames. Yeah. Is that a figurative thing? I mean, flames sound scary to me. So can you explain that a little bit better? Well, uh, I later found in the scriptures um, and in, in Revelations, I think it's chapter 14. I can't remember the verse where it was describing Christ. 
his eyes are as a flame of fire. They are not, they are not, not a flame of fire, but they are as a flame of fire. And it was almost, I mean, they're filled with so much light. So they weren't like on fire, but they were as fire as far as they were bright. They were light. Yeah. Almost, almost like a sparkling jewel, just filled with eternity. I don't know how else to describe it. I recall Sometimes it was it, I could see blue eyes, but but then you'd see it was like it would flash from the blue eyes to the the golden glowing, not glow, uh, uh, glistening. Um, glowing sounds like red hot, evil, you know, mean, uh, angry. Yeah, yeah. But more like sparkling, glistening. Um, yeah, it was just. I don't know. It's all beyond words, really. And, and our words, our words are poorly defined, you know, poorly define what we try to express. And you said he was wearing a robe. Yeah, a white robe uh, down to just above his ankles and um, just above his wrists. Uh, so, but, you know, when he stretched his arms out, you could really see the wound in his in his wrist. Yeah, his white robe, and he had white hair and a white beard, neatly trimmed, um, very handsome. Akiana, she did that. She did that painting that some people who have had near-death experiences respond to. But there it showed him with the brown hair. I don't know if I could describe, you know, his nose or his cheeks or you know the shape of his mouth, whatever. I, I don't think that's possible. I just remember focusing on his eyes. They, they intrigued me. And later finding scripture that confirmed that was a real blessing for me. And can you put any more adjectives to how it felt to be held? Oh, (laughs) it was kind of similar to being held in my mother's arms that I remember as a child, you know, Um, very much like that. Um, You know, you just feel safe and you feel secure the feeling comes from here, you know, inside. So, and it's hard to express that in words. It's like trying to describe the Holy Spirit. The Savior said the Holy Spirit was like wind. Um, and uh, we also learn in the scriptures that sometimes we feel this warmth in our bosom. And if you could, if you could put that into a feeling, it's like, if you can think of when you felt the spirit and you felt that warmth in your bosom and you magnify that by 10,000 times, maybe that comes somewhat close. <laughs> you know, that's what it felt like. How do you put that into words? You know, you really can't. I should have warned you up front. I ask hard questions like, no, that's fine. Like, how do you describe the colors in the feeling? Okay, let's move on. So, so he told you to go back, that you needed to go back. And was there a process to get back in your body? I just basically um, opened my eyes and there I was back in my body. I, you know, I know that with some near-death experiences, some uh, clergy has criticized, uh, you know, that saying it was over-embellished, you know, or whatever. And I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be expressive but I wanted to be honest. So I basically just tried to tell the story in the words of a little boy as much as possible. 
And I knew it was important to be descriptive, but yet I didn't want to overdo it. So, you know, I just said, hey, this is the way it is, you know, in my book. This is a safe, non-judgmental place right here. So we're we're not doing any of that judging at all. We're just listening and believing what you're having to say. Right. But that's that's how I felt. I just wanted to be straightforward and honest. And uh I I don't recall um having any feeling coming back into my body or really I mean, I remember leaving, but coming back, it was just as simple as open my eyes, and there I was. And for years, honestly, not really understanding what that was, I just, I just thought that was an inspired dream. And you know, someone still might, you might still interpret it as that. But then, when I started seeing parallels, when I read Raymond Booty's book, Life After Life, and then other books that followed, um, I found so many parallels, and I, I thought, well wait a minute, I didn't die, but yet I had the same experience? How is that possible? And now I researchers uh, say that you can have a near-death experience. Some call it a near-death-like experience, which is the way I refer to it, because I didn't physically die, but my spirit did separate. And in the scriptures, we hear expressions like caught up by the spirit, caught away by the spirit, carried away by the spirit. That sounds very similar. And, and in fact, Paul said that he was caught up by the spirit and he saw the third heaven. That sounds very similar to a, what we describe today as a near-death experience. That's what we call it today. But the scriptures are abundant with caught up by the spirit, carried away, caught away, you know. So they had them too. And I know that I don't remember any dreams from when I was eight years old. You had something profound happen. All right, let's move on from there. So you're eight years old. Uh, you come back. Did life get any easier? I mean, did did this stop the bullying or did it help you deal with the bullying? It helped me deal with it because I, when I returned, I God gave me a, a, a gift that, let me know immediately that he was there. And that was that feeling that I felt in his presence um, stayed with me for several weeks, several months, uh, you know, for quite some time afterwards. And I knew that he was there, he, you know, and uh, so I remember the last fight I had was in 10th grade and it was an unfair fight. Um, there was a, the kid who I guess I said something that offended him and he was like half my height. Um, and he says, I'm going to, I'm going to beat you up after school, you know, and meets in such and such a place. And I, I didn't want to fight anybody, you know, but I thought, well, I can't get out of this. And so I meet him and I, I'm thinking, well, this is going to be an easy fight. It'll be over with and I can go home, you know, but I didn't want to. Well, he shows up with school bully <laughs> and, um, you know, who had had some street fighting experience. I really hadn't. And he started throwing punches and I uh, pretty soon my eyes were bloody and my nose was bloody and my lip was bloody. And I'd try to throw a punch and I was just hitting there every once in a while. If I'd landed, it didn't hurt him. After a while, I think he thought, oh, man, I'm beating the crap out of him. If I keep going, I'm going to send him to the hospital. And so he said, say, uncle. And I says, no, this is an unfair fight. I'm not giving up. And I had determined then 
I thought, well, I'm sick of all this bullying crap and I'm just going to fight to my death if I have to. And heaven's a much better place anyway. So I, you know, so I was just not quit. And I told him I'm not quitting. This is an unfair fight. And so after a while he got up and walked away. And so the next day the whole school said I won the fight because I stood up to him. And after that, um, he left me alone. Everyone else left me alone. And so I didn't really have that problem anymore, but I was still kind of a loner. I was involved in band, mostly art, um, very involved in my art class, but I never really had lasting close friends. I was just someone that, you know, I just loved reading the scriptures. I didn't really read anything else. I wasn't interested at the time until my adulthood, I started reading other things, but, but that became my safe place reading the scriptures uh, because of what I felt when I read the scriptures, I, I could feel God's presence and I felt safe. You know, I've had so many experiences. I know that the Lord is there and I know when I fail, I can still count on him. I can repent and I can still count on him and he still loves me and I am enough. And uh, so um, I guess the message is, is that uh, for one thing, if, if you struggled with a similar disability, God loves you and life. And, and the, I look back at the experiences that I had in spite of my struggles, and I'm a stronger person. Um, and uh, someone, many years ago, someone heard my story um, a, a few years back. I was, I was on Kirsty Salisbury's podcast called Let's Talk Near Death. And, and, and she was a host from New Zealand. And so someone in New Zealand was struggling with whether or not life was worth it. Some girl in her 20s, and she was, I think she was considering taking her life. And she asked God, you know, she, she prayed to God and was taught in her prayer. She was telling God how she, you know, struggled socially and so on. And life just didn't seem to be worth it. And then she decided to go on the internet and she heard my live podcast and she heard my story. And a couple of years later, she contacted me on Facebook and she said, are you the Russell Ricks that had that near death experience? And I says, I am. She said, I just want you to know that I, I had a similar experience about the same age, but it was short. Um, and she said, I also have completed Genesis of the Corpus Callosum and your story gave me hope. All of us, whether it's, it, we all have a disability, so to speak, in some way. We're not, none of us are perfect, uh, whether it's something that it's visible and someone can see or, you know, like someone with a, a, a crippled leg, whatever, or invisible, like ACC. I mean, this is kind of a subtle disorder, but it did cause um, social delay for many years. Um Life is still worth it. And the things that I learned uh, made me stronger. Um, and I'm not angry at God for creating me this way. There was a purpose. If my book helped just that one person, like that one girl, it was worth it. So my story needed to be told. And maybe it still needs to be told. Maybe there are more people out there that need to know that um, there's hope and life is good and that God is aware of us. And uh, he loves us very, very much. Um, he doesn't love any one person over another. We are all equal in his eyes. 
That's beautiful. Thank you very much for explaining all of that and going through all that. And I know some of it is hard to talk about and is very tender and I appreciate it very much. If you have had a round-trip death experience, we would love to hear about it. Send an email to eric at roundtripdeath.com. And lastly, if you have found this program uplifting, if it's given you just a little more hope in the future, share it with a friend, hit that follow button, and take a few seconds to write us a review. Until next time, I wish you everything good that you're looking for in this life and the next.